0: So we are going to be in the book of 1 Timothy this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Uh, If you brought your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there. Uh, Again, that's 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. If you didn't bring your scripture with you, uh, that will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. So I've known for most of my life now uh, what I wanted to do, who I wanted to be. I uh, felt at the age of 15, probably, uh, is when I first began feeling called to, uh, to be a preacher uh, and to be uh, in front of people on a regular basis like I am. Uh, it didn't really come naturally to me. I've told you that before. is kind of a quiet kid. Uh, but one of the places that, it, that I first really became fully aware, or started to become aware, I should say, uh, that God might be calling me in this direction, was when I was an eighth grader uh, at uh, graduation. I was fortunate enough to be the salutatorian in my eighth grade class. Uh, that faded away before my senior year in high school. I didn't make that honor, but um, was fortunate enough to be the salutatorian in my eighth grade class. And so I gave the salutatory address, uh, and I enjoyed it. Like I, I got a kick out of it. I got a rush out of it. Uh, and so I knew from from that point kind of forward, I knew that God might be calling me uh, into that into that direction uh, to be comfortable in front of people, even though I was was a quiet kid. But even though that was the case, I can still remember going back and listening to an audio recording of that salutatory address and thinking to myself the first time I ever heard myself publicly speak of who is that redneck. I remember thinking that in my head, like, had this hick voice. I, I didn't know that I sounded that way. Anybody ever listen to yourself and, and think to yourself, I had no idea that I sounded that way. Like you, you accidentally listen to the voicemail recording when you, or you listen back to your voicemail recording and you figure out how you sound or, 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 or anything like that where you listen back to yourself and you think that's not at all what I pictured myself sounding like. Now that's bad enough. Now if you've ever been fortunate enough, maybe in a speech class or something to actually have yourself video recorded and to go back and watch that. That's even more humiliating, right? When you go back and you watch yourself and you figure out all those little inconsistencies and what you have to say and the mannerisms and the way you talk with your hands like I'm doing right now uh, and all sorts of things. Like that. Try having somebody sit in, in, in like a front row who may or may not be your spouse. Keep track of how many ums and uhs and stutters and, and things like that you, you say on any given any time you speak in front of somebody, you might again begin to be self aware and this image that you have of yourself might come tumbling down. Have you ever had that moment where an illusion about yourself suddenly unraveled? or you had a certain opinion of yourself, or you had a certain image of yourself, and then something happened, and that image faded away quickly. Here's a couple more examples from my own life, and again, maybe you can identify with some of these. Uh, As you know, Cheryl is expecting in June with our third child, and each time that she has been pregnant, she has had a heightened sense of smell. This time, it seems to be bothering her more than any of the other two pregnancies, and not just a heightened sense of smell, but any kind of strong smell, especially bacon for some reason, which Can anybody agree with me that bacon is the best smelling thing on earth as well as tasting? So even the smell of bacon like offends her nose, offends her senses uh, and gets her sick to her stomach. And any kind of strong smell like that does that. So the other day I was we were leaving the house and I had sprayed myself down with my Old Spice body spray. Right. Because I didn't want to stink. And so I walked out the door and she, she literally gagged at my smell. And suddenly my image came fading Away. Maybe you've done that. I know maybe there's some axe body spray wears out there, or something like that. That that someone told you that it didn't smell good. Your image suddenly fades. Away. I can remember the first time that I realized I was going bald. I was sitting in a college class, a seminary class, actually, and, and my, our campus seminary was in Abilene, but they had a connected campus in Corpus Christi. And so there was a, a, a camera behind us uh, that was beaming the signal down to Corpus Christi. And I can remember I was sitting in like the second row, I think, and, and the camera zooming in on the professor and going right over the top of my head. And I thought, who is that bald fat guy sitting in the second row? It was me in my image. My self-image suddenly came falling apart. We all lack self-awareness to one degree or another. And as Americans, as we continue along in our series on money matters, one place where we might lack self-awareness is in respect to our wealth. I think some of that is due to the fact that we're always looking above us. We're always looking to those who have more and comparing ourselves to them we're always thinking of the uber rich in society and the kinds of of money that fortune 500 companies talk about where we're always looking up and that distorts the truth in our mind that there are a lot more people below us than are above us if we call ourselves americans that's probably the case and because we don't necessarily see ourselves as rich we might see ourselves more as middle class than we do rich we also don't think or tend not to think that we bear the same responsibility that rich people bear. We might think to ourselves that individuals like uh, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or the new richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon, we might think that those individuals are the kinds that bear the responsibility of having great wealth and they need to do something with it. And if you know anything about those guys, you know that several of them do. Bill and Melinda Gates have a foundation that does incredible work all over the world. And, and we think that those are the kind of people that bear the responsibility that comes with great wealth, but not us because we're, we're normal people. But what if the rest of the world looked to us like we look to Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, like we look to professional athletes and movie stars? What if the rest of the world looked to us as if we were the uber rich? If that's possible, maybe this passage that we're going to read this morning is for us. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. In this close to the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy, giving him some final pointers, Paul tells Timothy how to address the rich of the present age, how to instruct them to live a God-honoring life. Paul had already talked to Timothy about those who aspire towards riches, those who want more. Now he's talking about those people who are actually wealthy. And I kind of think Paul might be talking to you and me here. So as we open this passage, may I encourage you, if you see yourself in this passage, or even if you don't, and you will here in a little bit, to think about it in these terms, not to be guilty for your riches, but instead to realize that God gave you them from a purpose and simply to be rich for the glory of God. 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19, Paul again writes these words to the man he had been mentoring, the pastor Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Again, Paul says to Timothy, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, Rich is, by its very definition, the word by its very definition is relative. Something is rich when it contains a a certain degree more of something than, than anything else. For instance, if you ate a chocolate pie or some banana pudding or something that was really sweet, you might have said during Thanksgiving, you might have said that that's rich. And what you mean by that is is relative to other foods or relative to other desserts, this piece of food had more sugar or more butter or more chocolate or whatever flavor it is that you're saying that food is rich in, that it had more of that than other foods like it, relatively speaking. And the same is true with money. We use that term in a relative sense. There is no dollar amount that equals rich. No, rich is having more money, relatively speaking, than other people. That's why we would look up and we would say that professional athletes, that movie stars, that Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, that people like that, that those are the rich. Because relative to like our frame of reference, they have much more money than we do. And so if I were to ask you if you were rich, what would that mean to you? Would rich mean being in the world's wealthiest 50%? Being, having more money than, than half of the world, would that make you rich? If you wanted to define it in the strictest of terms, I guess that it would, but maybe not in, in your mind, and, and it wouldn't in my mind either. That would kind of put us in the middle. But what about being in the world's wealthiest 25%? Having more money than three-quarters of the rest of the world, would that put you in the rich category? Or, or let's make it even more exclusive. What about being in the world's wealthiest 10%, being richer than 90% of the population in which there are 7 billion approximately people? Would that make you rich, being richer than like 6 billion people almost? Keep that in mind, the way that you answer that question. And we're going to do a quick test. There's a website called globalrichlist.com that I would encourage you to check out on your free time. You can look it up on your mobile device later if you would like to. But on this website, you can go in and you can put your annual income, and according to data that they've gathered from the World Bank and other sources, they have put where that income falls relative to the rest of the world. And so I'm going to show you a few pictures, a few graphics. Dave, if you could go ahead and put the first one up. This is someone who makes $100,000 a year. If any of you make $100,000 a year, and there could very well be some of you in this room, it would put you in the world's wealthiest 99.92% or excuse me, the world's wealthiest 0.08%. The wealthiest one-tenth of one percent, you're wealthier than even that. Uh, you are literally 99.9% of people are below you on the rich scale if you make $100,000 annually. Now, some of you are sitting here and you say, that's, that's six-figure salary. I don't make a six-figure salary. Let's cut that in half, and that's the next picture. $50,000 would still put you up richer than 99.7% approximately of people in the world. percent, relatively speaking, you would be richer than than 99.7 percent of the world. Maybe 50 sounds even higher. Let's cut that in half again. The next slide is $25,000 annually. You're still richer than 98 percent of the rest of the world. Now we're, we're starting to get smaller and smaller. Before, well, go ahead and throw the next one up there, Dave. If you were making minimum wage in Texas and working a full-time job, you would be making approximately $15,000 a year, and that would put you still wealthier than 92% of the world's population. So chances are, most of us in this room that have a job, that have a full-time job, are in the world's wealthiest 8%, if not higher. Now, when I looked at this, I was in the world's wealthiest 1%. And to actually think of it along those lines is, To my American sensibilities, that sounds insane, because I think of the uber-wealthy which actually I am kind of uber wealthy if you put it on this scale, but I, but I think of, of the movie stars. I think of the athletes. I think of the, the CEOs and Fortune 500 company guys. I, I think of the guys that, that drive around in, 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 in super nice cars and work on Wall Street. Uh, I think of the guys that, that, you know, that work in downtown Dallas or, or, or any of the other big downtowns and any of the big cities in our country uh, and make you know these huge seven, eight figure salaries. Uh, these are the people I'm, I'm thinking of as, as the uber rich. And, and when I think of myself in comparison to that, I certainly don't feel rich because I'm, I'm so busy Looking up, that I have my view distorted, and, and what I immediately begin to do is to explain it away. Right? Is to say, well, that's that's not counting the debt that I have, and I have some serious student loan debt left over. So if, if you actually looked at my net worth, I certainly wouldn't be uh, in, in the same category as, as my income would show. And so so I don't, you know, surely that that's not that's not that's not me. I'm, I'm not as rich as that that number would say that I am. But but here's the truth about us as, as Americans: we are so rich that we aren't even aware of the things that make us rich compared to the rest of the world. Uh, Because we think, like, well, what about the cost of living? That might be something that we think of, but what do we mean when we say cost of living in the United States? When we say cost of living in in, in Texas, in the United States, we're talking about uh, some kind of home that has indoor plumbing and and, and a refrigerator and and a freezer that we keep like six months worth of food of and and air conditioning and and a car for each adult of the household, making sure that if we have children, one of those cars is is big enough to get around everybody at the same time and and, and making sure that those cars have air conditioners and, and ways to hook our phones or our iPods into so that we can listen to something and and making sure that each family member has a a smartphone so that we can all communicate with one another. And and so that not only do we have those vehicles, but we can put gas in those vehicles to go and and to buy groceries from a local grocery store and, and making sure that we have that ability not just to buy like food, not just to subsist off the lease, but to be able to store things up just in case things... Go south and, and a cost of living might also mean thinking and planning for the future and, and all of the things that we think of as cost of living. That if the rest of the world were to think of cost of living, they would think, do I have somewhere to like lay down and be safe and have enough food to get through the day? That would be the cost of living in a big part of the world. But to us, we tell ourselves we need so much more. Now, let me stop right here and, and step on my own toes in case you're thinking I'm, I'm stepping just on yours. The number one health problem in America is obesity. It's something that many of us deal with. I want you to think about that for a second. We're making ourselves sick in this country because we have too much. When there are people in other parts of the world dying because they don't have enough. That's who we are as Americans. Now... Before you get off on some um, guilt trip and you leave here feeling guilty about yourself, let me go ahead and tell you that that's not what this passage is trying to do, and that's not what I am trying to do. There's there's nothing wrong with, with being rich. There's nowhere in Scripture that says the rich are going to go to hell. It talks about how hard it is to know that you need God if you are rich, which again, it's all of us in the room if we look, relatively speaking, at what the word rich actually means. So I don't want you to walk out of here with a sense of being guilty or feeling guilty or feeling, asking yourself like, okay, I need to go home and and look up how much money I have in the bank and and write a check for that amount and and just give it away. That's not what I'm asking you to do. If, If God is asking you to do that, you need to do that, but that's not what I'm asking you to do Instead, I'm asking us to look at Scripture and to consider that we might be rich for a reason. For the glory of God. That that when, when the Scriptures talk to the rich of this present age, they tell us, as Paul tells Timothy to instruct us, to not put our hope in money, to not put our hope in worldly riches that are inconsistent and that are fading away. You see, I, I was wondering as I was putting all of this together, what is a dollar really worth? When Paul says to charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, again, what is, what is the certainty of our riches? What is a dollar really worth in the United States? In 1971, and I didn't know this because I wasn't around it because I haven't studied it, so I had to look it up, but in 1971, Richard Nixon took the United States off of the gold standard, which means that our, our dollar ha- has value, but that value is not based upon any kind of actual uh, physical commodity any longer. Uh, you know before the, the gold standard was done away with, you know, you had a federal reserve note, which was a dollar bill or five dollar bill or whatever, and that represented so much gold that the United States had stowed away in its federal reserves now it 's not based on that anymore now the dollar is, is based on I I don't really know. I couldn't explain it. I I tried to figure it out as to exactly where the worth comes from. But... But it comes from basically a mutual agreement by those who use it, uh, by the Fed and other people who set interest rates and things like that. Where it's kind of set along those lines. Now, I'm not trying to cast doubt on the dollar or anything. It is still the most like, like it's still the most uh, consistent commodity traded in the world. And that's why it's used as the standard around most of the world when there's any kind of international trade. But, but still, it's kind of this fluid, kind of hard to get your mind around thinking it's exactly what the worth is and that speaks exactly what paul is talking about the uncertainty of riches we live and die in our country for money that's only valuable because other people decided that it was valuable go even back to the gold standard the only reason why that made sense is because someone decided that this rare metal that they dug up out of the ground was worth something that's the only reason why any economy makes sense, because we all agree in the economy that this thing is valuable, and I'm going to work for and trade with this item, and we go after that, even when you take money completely out of it. Maybe it was back when it was livestock, and you were trading livestock and food, and, and, and maybe this this kind of food was worth this much wool, and, and vice versa, it was mutually agreed upon by people, and even from the very beginning to today, with the sophisticated system that we have in place, all of it is uncertain. To hope in money is to hope in an imaginary construct. But by the standards of this construct, we are among the most fortunate, the richest. So as Paul would say, we should be rich in good works. We should be rich for the glory of God. Paul tells Timothy that they, the rich, are to do good works, to be generous and ready to share So we are rich by these standards, no matter how arbitrary they are. We ought to seek to use those riches to help others, and Christmas is one of the greatest times to do that, to be rich in good works. If you don't hear anything else, hear the next few minutes, and let me give you a few ideas of ways that you can be rich for the glory of God this Christmas season. Buy Christmas presents for a family in need. Open your eyes and look at those around you. Do you see anyone who has kids who may not be able to buy the Christmas that you're going to be able to buy your kids? Maybe you could lend a hand and give them that same joy that you get to give when you hand your child a present. And, and if you do that, let me, let me give you a, an extra encouragement. Don't wrap the gifts, take them to mom and dad. Let them wrap them, let them give them to their kids, and let that be a joy that they share with their children. Maybe you can donate to one of the international organizations and there are plenty that are seeking to ease poverty and its effects all over the world. One of my favorites is Heifer International. Now, Samaritan's Purse and others do what Heifer International started doing, but they were the first one, at least in my consciousness, that started doing something during Christmas. And heifer.org is the website, if you want to look it up, where you could go and you could buy livestock or you could buy some farming implements or something for someone in a third world country so that they will not only be given a gift, but they will be able to use that gift to help them earn money on their own. You can go to charitywater.org or .com, whatever it might be, and you can deal with one of the biggest crises in our world today, which is the lack of clean potable drinking water. You can give to one of the organizations where you can sponsor a child through a ministry like World Vision or Compassion International. If you use any kind of charity, make sure you do your homework and look it up. Go to Charity Navigator online. See how that charity ranks as far as their efficiency. But those are good ideas. You can give to a local charity like our food bank through the Seventh-day Adventist. You can give to our community benevolence fund that we use to help out all the churches in town to help those who are in need. When the angel tree becomes available, you can do that. You can get one of our blessing bags. Those of you who remember those from last year, we'll make those available, I think, next week, if not the next one that you can give to people who are in need. You can do random acts of kindness for your neighbor. You can go mow some lawns or rake some leaves or bake some cookies, do something for those that are around you. And speaking of cooking, when it comes time to cook that Christmas meal or that Christmas dinner, go ahead and make a few extra portions and take them to somebody that you know might be in need. And if you don't know anybody in need, take them to somebody that might enjoy an extra helping of Christmas food, your next door neighbor, for instance. And if you're thinking about people that are around you that may or may not be alone during Christmas, maybe there's an extra seat that you can invite them to to share Christmas dinner with your family. Get your kids involved if you have any. If your kids are like my kids, they have way too many toys in their rooms, in their toy boxes, and in their playrooms. Gather some of those up and teach the act of giving to your children so that you can give to an organization like toys for tots or something similar invite someone to church tell someone about the true hope of this season and what christmas is really about not what our materialistic american culture has made it about it and be rich for the glory of god and paul tells us that this makes a good foundation for the future money fades but the lives you change last forever the kind of thing that Paul is talking about, about being generous, being rich in good works, that's the currency that heaven trades in, not the currency of this world. When you let your worldly wealth go and pursue God's mission to be rich for his glory, you lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. And as Paul closes out the passage, you lay hold of that which is true life. Not uncertain worldly riches, but true life you know that the 70 80 90 100 plus years that you spend on this earth are but a blip of our total existence and that relatively speaking to eternity our time on this earth is very small where are you going to put your savings in this life or the one to come where are you going to spend your time and effort building up treasure in this life or the one to come if you put worldly Treasures where they are, where they should be, where they should be according to scripture to be used for God's kingdom and for God's kingdom glory. You lay up treasures in heaven and you lay hold of that which is truly life. You begin living the life that God has created you to live eternally. You begin living it today and that stands up in the rest of scripture as well. Paul calls us citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, meaning that we don't belong here. We belong somewhere else. But while we are here, Paul would tell us we are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. We are representing the true we are representing a a different world order in this fallen world order and we do that in everything that we do including the way that we spend our money and that we handle our wealth you are rich and God thank him thank God for allowing us to be blessed in that way amen Uh, do not feel guilty about the blessings that God has given you It would be like feeling guilty for those little faces that you get to tuck in at night. Don't feel guilty for the fact that God has given you riches for the fact that you are amongst the world's wealthiest. That's not the point of this sermon that will leave you in a state of stupor that won't do anybody any good if you walk out of here feeling guilty. But instead, I encourage you to realize that you have been blessed as I have been telling you the last four weeks and as Scripture says all throughout the Bible that we have been telling you, Scripture has been telling you, I've been telling you to be rich for the glory of God, to take what He has given you and use it to bless His name and to bless those around you. This is the goal for the Christian in the way that we handle our money, in the way that we handle our gifts, and the way that we handle everything that God has given us. We are rich. Whether you know. Know it or not, if you are an American and you are making minimum wage in a full-time job throughout this year, you are amongst the world's wealthiest 8%. That's not something to feel guilty about, but it is something to feel responsible for. To realize that God has given you not so that you might be some pool that, that doesn't have any outlets and gets stagnant, but rather so that God might pour into you and you might pour into others. May we be rich for the glory of God and not for the glory of self. There are too many people in this world that are rich for the glory of self, and that's why there are so many people in the world who are needy. Because so much of the world's resources is caught up in people who just want to use it on themselves. May we not be those people. Amen. Anybody here this morning hearing what I'm saying, may we not be those people. May we instead be a people who feel the responsibility and see it as a gift that God has given us. God didn't make you rich just so you could be rich. He made you rich so that you could be rich for the glory of God in good works, with generosity. May you be rich for God's glory this Christmas season. May you find ways to share the hope of a Savior that we are all waiting on to return with eager expectation, knowing that when he does, joy will be unspeakable. May we give a piece of that life for other people to hold on to in the way that we handle the blessings that God has given us. May we give them a foretaste of the world that is to come in this world today. Be rich for the glory of God. During our time of invitation this morning, I want you to consider and I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you in the time of prayer about ways that you can use your riches for his glory and for the benefit of others around you this holiday season. If you need to pray about that where you're at, I encourage you to do that. You can pray with me if you would like to. The altar is open. You can certainly pray there. You can find me after the service if you want to do that. Well, let's stand together. I'm going to pray the band is going to lead us in a song of invitation. Once again, after they are done, you move in whatever way God is calling. Father, once again, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for the weeks that we've had, the meals that we've shared with family and friends over Thanksgiving. And God, we thank you for all of the little things that we forget about that we know we ought to be thankful for. God, I pray that as we leave this place, as your body gathered here in Grandview, God, that you would help us not to leave with a sense of guilt, but with a sense of responsibility. That you have blessed us because you love us and you want to and you enjoy it, but that you also expect us to use it. God, may we be a people, may we be a body who are rich in good works and generosity, especially during this Christmas season. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.